Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. We're excited to have our friend back as a guest here, Greg Kokel. And uh, we are going to talk in this episode about his book, The Story of Reality. And uh, Greg, great to have you back on the podcast. Well, thanks for being here. Always, always fun to be with, hang out with you guys. So thanks yes. for having me back again. Yeah, and, thanks, uh, Greg. We're really excited. I really enjoyed your book, Story of Reality. Right. I didn't get through all of it like last time, sorry. But yeah. um, I really enjoyed the uh, worldview <laughs> worldview uh, book. It was very, uh, very readable. And so uh, we're really glad you. to have you here. So for yeah, Tim, thanks. it's just like toward the story of reality. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm horrendous. It's a call back to our last episode. <laughs> sounds yes. like a title for an ETS talk. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. You said that last time when we oh, had you okay. on. Toward you dest- always oh, means it was so like, good. I've got, you were destroying I've got, Tim. It was so wonderful. Everyone I have that it. same book sitting right over here, Toward an Exegetical yeah. Theology with Walter yeah, yeah. Kaiser. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, but before we get into discussing... Uh, the story of reality. We're going to yep. do that thing we always do. So Tim, would you like to give us the the drop? Books and business. Books and business. Let's talk about <laughs> some books. I'll go first. Uh, a book that I started maybe about a month or so ago. It's titled Outdoor Kids in an Inside World by Stephen Ranella. And uh, I know there's a couple of our listeners that are familiar with Meat Eater, it's a brand of like outdoor clothing and hunting and all this type of stuff. And uh, that's where I first kind of got into some of these guys. And uh, just interesting that he's writing a book about how to raise children as a parent in a culture where most activities now are indoor. It's dominated by inside non-activity activities. And so he despises that and he wants Mm -hmm. to raise outdoor kids in an inside world. What I think is fascinating about it is he is not a Christian. And uh, actually, if you listen to some of his podcasts, has some very weird views on things. Hmm. Uh, Like there's a couple of episodes where he starts interpreting, and I'm air quote interpreting, interpreting some of the stories in Genesis, like... um, Jacob and Esau, and he completely allegorizes it. It's horrendous. Oh, uh, Esau is the good guy, right? Oh, it's well, he's it's the outdoorsman. It's even, yeah, it's this is a, it's not a story of two real characters. It's an allegory of how uh, agriculture dominated the, the hunting culture of, of our ancestors. You uh, super, um, the deceiver. Yeah, it's, it's her, it's so bad. It's, it's interesting to listen to, but it's really bad exegesis. Uh, but so ultimately, I, I, I thought the book would be valuable because ultimately what he's doing is he's teaching parents how to disciple their kids. It's just discipling them in a very different thing or different way than we would. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I've read the introduction in the first chapter and I do I do think it's really interesting, but you can catch very easily his his worldview comes through as he talks. He's evolutionary and a lot of his reasoning is, well, this is the way it's always been for millions of years type ideas. And uh, so as someone who likes the outdoors, it's intriguing to me. As someone who likes and, and thinks a lot about discipleship, I think it's an interesting book as a he's writing as a parent to parents 
to yeah. raise up the kids. And so I'm, it's it's interesting to hear other people talk about those things, but from a completely different worldview than than myself. So Charlie, it's um, so interesting you brought that up though, because just the other day I was listening to clips from a talk that Jordan Peterson gave. Yeah. And he actually did the exact same thing. He talked about Genesis and he he was basically deconstructing those stories in terms of the virtuous things you can learn from them, not as historical events, and um, just doing an analysis. So he wasn't trying to exegete at all, but he was looking at the themes there and making the point that the church should be a safe place for strong masculinity development. And that's not happening in the culture because the whole notion of toxic masculinity is feminized men. Peterson says it's happening in the church and Christians wake up. Interesting kind of take, but it was a very parallel to what you're talking there about, uh, Charlie. Yeah. And, you know, I just saw something. I I don't know what this says about me, but the ads I see on Facebook probably reveals more about my character than other things because they they know what you want to see, right? They know. (laughs) And so, uh, which is going to make this even more interesting. So Jordan Peterson, I keep seeing this ad that he came out with like this I don't know if I, I would call it a master class or what, but it's this like marriage thing uh, where he's talking about like a healthy marriage yeah. and what that yep. looks like. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I don't know if I would call him Christian or like pseudo Christian, but he, oh, he's, he's operating. No. But he's certainly well, moving closer. He's yeah. Not, yeah he's, he's in that vernacular. He says Christian things. Yeah. Um, well, he but has so, a lot of respect for Christianity and for yeah. C.S. Lewis. He seems like similar to where C.S. Lewis was on his own journey. Yeah. In fact, he's likened yeah. himself to that, but not there yet. So interesting to hear, it would be interesting to hear his take on marriage. And then especially if he does go to biblical texts to defend any of his points, because then how is he going to interpret those texts to establish his point would be interesting. I... But anyway, so roll up the ball of yarn there. Uh, outdoor kids in an inside world. I won't give it a rating. I just, you know, if you do want to read it, if you're in that, uh, if if that interests you, the outdoors discussion, just read with discernment because he's definitely coming from a a, a wayward position. But interesting book so far. So there's some general revelation continuity between Jordan Peterson and that author. I've already mm-hmm. forgot his name, and what we see in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is some truth that kids need to get outside. They need to like what he's saying like it's overall premise, they need to get out. Yeah. And I, was, I have five kids. And sometimes we just say, get out of here, go outside and play. They need that. <laughs> go play in the street. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not there. <laughs> hey, that's fine. You know, sounds good to the single guy. Send the kids to the street. <laughs> well, we do play a little, uh, uh, what is it? Hockey. We'll have a ball and they stick that in the street and our street's slow enough. So they do actually play in the street a little bit there, Greg, but <clears throat> usually Very dad's good. there watching both ways. So Greg, what do, you, what do you have for us? You reading anything or working on anything recently? Um, actually, what I'm reading at the moment is the, the Lord of the Rings one time through, Ooh. one additional time through. I finished it many, many years ago, but I have my daughter's a leather-bound copy that I got her for Christmas a couple of years ago and the whole set because she loves it, keeps reading over and over again. I've seen the movie countless times, but uh, I realize now that the book is actually quite different than the movie. And in some ways, the movie is a little bit more fun because it moves a little faster, okay? Um, And uh, the... the, uh, the director there brought some really interesting twists and turns that I think 
were great improvements, if I can speak like that regarding Tolkien. Um, yeah, but be careful. That's, yeah, that's just fun <laughs> stuff, though, for me. Um, I, I don't know if I mentioned this last year because I finished this book last year, uh, Live Not by Lies by Rod Dreher. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, yeah. I think you talked about that last time. Okay, that well, was one of the, I, that I one in the... Rise and the Fall of the Third Reich. Oh, we, we fall. talked about it and we yeah. promoted it too. Okay, uh -huh. so I won't reprise that, but I have finished Kevin DeYoung's book on the Lord's Prayer. Now, oh, I yeah. really like Kevin DeYoung a lot. I've had him on the air a number of times. I, I have never met him, but we've had interactions as colleagues. And uh, he he's written quite a few smaller books, so they're very handy. And they're very even-handed, thoughtful, insightful, well-written analyses of particular issues. He's got uh, a wonderful little book on <clears throat> the Council of Dort uh, that was a response to the Arminian Remonstrance, and so it's meant to set up reform thinking over and against Arminian thinking, and he does a really great job of that. People interested in that. I read that, I think, last year, but I finished just uh, maybe a month ago his book on the Lord's Prayer. Again, a shorter book. Um, you, know, you read a chapter a day and you're done in a week and a half or something, uh, seven chapters, eight chapters. Uh, yeah, eight chapters, 106 book uh, pages, rather. Easy reading, but um, I thought was very helpful for me. There's a lot of writing on the Lord's Prayer. Luther wrote on it, and so did everybody else just about. But I find prayer to be a bit of a mystery. And I, uh, uh, 49 years as a Christian and working to make prayer a regular part of my life, still uh, do not understand the calculus of prayer. Um, the most important rule of prayer, the first rule is to pray. <laughs> and that's about as far as I've gotten. You got to pray. Uh, figuring it out is a lot more difficult. But I think DeYoung does a really good job of, of, um, of parsing out the details in uh, the Jesus recommended prayer pattern that we call the lord's prayer but really is the disciples prayer and uh and so i, I could I, I give a high recommended uh recommendation to kevin de young's book the lord's prayer and just about anything else that he's written i like what he does yeah i checked that one out again i'm really horrendous i'm a bookstore manager so give me a little bit of break that i don't read all of many books <laughs> but de young's book uh, lord's prayer i actually read some of that one again and i really thought his concept of how the ancients didn't have the bible and several of them didn't know how to read and so how did they draw near to god it was through prayer mm -hmm. prayer was how they drew near to god and he brought that up in that book mm -hmm. and uh, i thought i found that really helpful just to help people even i've, I've mentioned that to a couple of people and say you know and we think of drawing near to God as getting into his word. And that's true, you do. But even more so, drawing near to him in prayer mm -hmm. is um, is how we worship him. Right. So uh, anyway, that was something that I took from De Young's book. I really liked it too. I'm glad you found it beneficial yeah, uh, as well. Plus, plus it's, it's actually meant to be um, an outline of prayer. And ironically, it has been taken as a prayer that people pray in a way that Jesus didn't intend it to intend. Right. I think in uh, certainly in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm not sure how close it was. Yeah. And I think he did this, the Lord's prayer, or at least an iteration of it in Matthew. Um, he says, don't just pray in meaningless repetition. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's what has people have taken the Lord's prayer uh, in, at least in some traditions to become 
boom, 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 boom. Let's see how many times we can get it out. You know, in fact, right. I even saw a Western yesterday, <clears throat> last scene of it or so of the last episode of 1883. And it <laughs> some person was dying and he said, I don't know the Lord's Prayer. Like, but the Lord won't hold it against you that I don't know how to pray over your death, kind of so as if there's something <laughs> magic about praying the Lord's Prayer over a dying person. You know, total lack of understanding. Hollywood doesn't get it in any event. No. Uh, I, I too like the the fleshing out of the details, and now I use it as an outline, uh, oftentimes for my own prayer in the morning. Yeah, and we love that you uh, are reading through uh, Lord of the Rings again. Uh, we just gave away like four sets of oh, Lord wow. of the Rings. Uh, we had a contest yeah. last month, and uh, That's a lot of rings. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> Still, well, I think we wanted to rule them all. That's ah. right. <laughs> I think we gave out nine to men, uh, seven to the dwarves, um, three to the elves. Yeah. But, uh, horrendous. I kept one copy for myself, though. Um, to rule them all, right? Yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. oh. You know, it's interesting. Oh. Just one more comment on prayer is I, I grew up Catholic. And so like that idea of the vain repetition, like when I became a believer and I read that verse, it was like, Oh my goodness, how yeah. off. And yeah. uh, I've been to a handful of Catholic funerals. And uh, okay, we're going to all sit in this room, 30, 40 of us, and we're going to do the rosary together. Mm -hmm. And we're going to just, a vain repetition is the exact, mm -hmm. like we're just muttering the phrases over and over and over again. And I just kind of sit there and look around and I'm like, you know, half of this room, you know, like, they they are nowhere near a relationship with the Lord, but they feel they are if they have those memorized mm. prayers. Yeah, they have and, the beads. I was raised Catholic too. And all yeah. of these prayers are not to God anyway. They're to Mary. Yeah. Yeah. The rosary mm. was given by Mary, you know, or allegedly. It's a it's, uh, it's it's eye opening when you know to come out of that and to look back at it and and just see through the stained glass a little bit. But yeah, good point. Um anyway, Tim. Yeah, you're you're wanting to move on here, so so I'm listening to <laughs> the inheritance inheritance story series, uh, Aragon cycle. cycle, inheritance cycle. That's yeah. It. There's Thank four you. books they call a cycle, I think. Boom! Instead of a trilogy, oh, yeah. There's something. like a whole naming scheme that I probably got it wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's right. Anyway, so it's about a dragon. Actually, it's about a few dragons. And uh, this blue dragon, Aragon, Aragon is the primary character. And um, these have gone around, I think, a fair amount in our culture. So um, Aragon is the first book. The second one is Eldest. I've been listening to these on Audible with my children. And we just took a family vacation down to Missouri. Um, and so we listened to, we finished Eldest on the road trip home. Uh, honest, honestly, it's Okay, so this is something that I'm working through right now, but um, dealing with fiction books, uh, fiction books that are Christian, uh, and like Green Ember, like Wing Feather, okay, those would be Christian fiction, and then dealing with secular fiction, and that's what this is. This is secular fiction. Now, there's different kinds of secular fiction. Some secular fiction is very... Um, worldview, like Christian worldview kind of thing, which I thought this kind of delved into story of reality and uh, Greg, your book. So uh, that's why I wanted to talk about this one, this one here, because in this book, 
um, I was even reading some of the reviews and people were being kind of critical. Like you could have made the book like a third shorter. Uh, and as I'm listening through it, I'm like, yeah, they really could have. Instead, what did they end up spending a lot of time on? And the answer is worldview. They're dealing with like the problem of evil. You know, what side are you really on, Aragon? Remember, Aragon's the main character. And they'll go through this whole discourse on, and, and this, this elf is, is, is picking on him about who's, what's really good. You know, tell me what's really good. And um, I have a couple of spots here where they're talking about wisdom. Uh, wisdom, he finally said, wisdom is the most important tool for a person to possess. A fair guess, but again, no, because they're trying to figure out what is what is like first philosophy, really. But he says, a fair guess, but again, no. The answer is logic, or to put it another way, the ability to reason analytically applied, applied properly, it can overcome any lack of wisdom, which one only gains through age and experience. So what's most important, wisdom or logic? I was like, huh, what are they doing here? Mm-hmm. And I'm not entirely sure, but they're like dealing with worldview issues. And I think this is just rationalism repackaged uh, to a child hmm. uh, so that they're like cultivating the affections of these children, even when they're just little kids. So then he's like, how do you intend to teach me this logic? Uh, and then he asks the question, why do you fight the empire? Um, and so then they have this whole big discussion. Well, why are you fighting the empire? And the guy, the guy's pricking him like, well, what's really good? You know, is it really good to lead this war against the empire when you know that all these people are going to die to support this cause? And he's like poking at him and poking at him. And, uh, so I just found this really fascinating how they're, they're dealing with, uh, philosophy, what's right and wrong. And then in some of these latter chapters, um, let's see here. And then he, they come back to this idea. So um, this elf, that's the Lord. I know this is kind of confusing because you haven't read the book, but what was fascinating to me is this fictional representation of how they are teaching worldview, teaching what is right and wrong. Um, Aragon, the main character, he said, I know why fighting Galbatorix, that's the bad guy, is worth it, though thousands of people may die. Okay, do tell me because Galvatorix has already caused more suffering over the past hundred years than we ever could in a single generation. And unlike a normal tyrant, we cannot wait for him to die. He could rule for centuries or millennia, persecuting and tormenting people the entire time unless we stop him. So what's the reason why he's going to go to war and he's willing to allow all these people to die to overthrow this bad guy? It's just to stop pain and suffering. Exactly. Okay. He's like, we're, this is going to be better. So yes, is there going to be a lot of pain and suffering that's going to be required of the people of this generation to overthrow this wicked man? Yeah, there will be. Okay. But at the same time, in the vast centuries and millennia of years, it'll still be better. All right. So it's like, what, what's this motivation? And then at the end, he says, because rescuing the two dra eggs from Galbatorix is the only way to save the dragon. So then he has the second reason. And the second reason is because we're going to save the dragons. Because there's only two, two dragons left. At least that's what he thinks, at least at this time. And there's two other eggs. So we can save the dragons. But this is where it like kind of comes back to bite him. And where I think that the book really, the plot kind of falls apart. Because if the main character would flip over to the bad guy's side, they'd be able to save the dragons. That would work. Um, 
the way that the, the storyline plays out. So if that's really a motivating force for him, okay, then it falls apart later. So he has one chapter that's called like the beginning of wisdom. Uh, he deals with the problem of evil. What's guiding and directing his, his, his uh, um, decisions is constantly pragmatism. The elf argues for empiricism completely complete empiricism uh, eventually and i was kind of working through this a little bit is he a rationalist or is he an empiricist and i was even talking to sterns about it a little bit is he an, a rationalist or is he an empiricist and i really think that he's an empiricist where the physical reality is all that exists all that we know is what's physically here and this is where i've uh um you know would i just give this to my kids much less the, the lousy romance that's constantly being developed between the main character and some female figure. Okay, so I just, man, there's some books that are secular fiction that I like, where the Fredfern grows. I think it's actually a really good fiction, secular book that I'd recommend. But this thing, I mean, I would have to, I, let's just say I paused the record or the, because it was audible and it was in the van. I paused it on multiple occasions and talked to my kids and was teaching them through it. On multiple occasions, I'm like, this guy's a hedonist. He's just living for pleasure. He's a pragmatist. He's an empiricist. And like, there's this is like a, a fictional representation of our culture and the worldview in which we live. Mm. So anyway, Aragon and Eldest, I've made it through the first two. It's a cycle, four book series, and that's my books in business. So do you? So do you think there's some good in it, or is this like Shack Stack? I don't think I'd stick it on the shack stack. Um, I think I'd give it maybe like a one. I would just be, I don't know about giving it to kids. It's yeah. written to children and it's teaching them to follow their heart. And this kid can't control himself and he just loves this girl, even though it's going to spell doom to their cause. And he constantly says he'll leave her alone and then he doesn't. And it's just a bunch of secular worldview junk. But the storyline is fun. Mm. And that's where they get you. It smuggling some stuff in there. Okay. I'll give it well, one for right now. <laughs> that's interesting. I don't even know what to say, so I'm just going to go on. But well, I would say this. So as as a kid, you probably read all that and I'm I'm guessing a lot of that's going over your head. That mm -hmm. doesn't mean it's not it doesn't mean you don't worry about it. But I know there's a lot of things that I watched when I was younger and then older, I watched again and I'm like, "Whoa." Like Star Trek The Next Generation, one of my favorite shows. That thing, it's like all postmodernism. I had no clue when I was in high school watching it. So, but none of that affect me. It probably did. So I think that's a good warning. Mm -hmm. Well, in a totally unrelated way, I'm reading a book on church history. So <laughs> it's not <laughs> fiction. It's not anything. Um, I teach Western Civ here and I want to infuse a little more church history into the course. So I grabbed a couple of church history textbooks and Yusto Gonzalez is a well-known Christian historian and uh, so I went to grab his book and it was only like 98 pages long. And I remember thinking this guy is like really well known. It's his book is 98 pages. I'm confused. I got the baby version of his book. And so it's but I, it's a good recommendation for you. So he's got a two a, a two volume series, The Story of Christianity. And it's it's like over a thousand pages. It's one of the standard texts in Christian in church history. But this is called uh, Church History and Essential Guide. And listener, if you don't know anything about church history, this book puts all the cookies on the low shelf. It would give you a great overview of this big, uh, important, salient points of Christian history. And so just like The Lord's Prayer by Kevin DeYoung, a super small book that's manageable, 
I found this one to be super easy to follow. Now, I know a little bit about history. If you don't know anything about history, I still think this is going to be a good book. So I would give this like a, uh, like probably a six on the goodness scale. It's a good book. I'd recommend it. If you have no interest in it, you're probably not going to like it. So the <laughs> Eusto Gonzalez, the, the, the essential guide to church history. I like it. I would recommend it. So I'll keep it short and sweet so we can get to the other book we're talking about. All right. That's a, a great segue, Andy. So let's let's get to the book we're here to talk about. So the like story a, of reality. History, history story. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course. Oh. There you go. So uh, the story of reality. And uh, Greg, we, we just want to kind of start off with where did the idea for this book come from? Was there a specific purpose you had in mind to writing this book? And uh, yeah, kind of give us your your first thoughts. Like, what what do you want an introductory conversation to be about the book? Like, what, what would yeah. you want people to know? Well, um, actually, those are two different issues. Uh, I like to I can answer them both. But uh, the how did this develop? This idea develop, and it started twenty years ago at least. And what I'm thinking is, I'm I'm aware of the fact, and you gentlemen are aware of this too, about how. Christians' understanding of Christianity can be very shallow, all right? Mm. There may be a couple of points where they focus in on, like, for example, the cross, appropriately, uh, and then the second coming. (laughs) You know, these are really popular topics with very popular churches that I think are wonderful churches, but notice that they just got two pieces of the puzzle. And so when you have two pieces, you don't see the big picture. You don't put the puzzle together. In fact, when I give this talk, um, I uh, use a puzzle as a prop, and I take a puzzle, I dump it out all over the stage, which is a great visual because people are shocked. And I I know Matt bothered a lot of people. You want to come up and pick those pieces up, you know. <laughs> but this is the way many Christians' understanding of Christianity is. They may have a lot of the right pieces, uh, but they don't know if they got all the right pieces. They don't know if they got other puzzle pieces mixed in, if you take the puzzle as an analog to a worldview. And so consequently, it's it's hard. They, they, they don't know how to do their lives well because of that. And, um, and so what the goal of the story of reality is, is to kind of give the big picture, similar to what you were just describing, Andy, a few moments ago in the Gonzalez book, to give the big picture. But it started out many years ago with an awareness of the difficulty of the of the lack of understanding of some basic theological realities. And here, think just kind of fundamental systematics right now, you know, theology of God, theology of man, theology of Jesus, theology of the cross, theology of the of the end end of all things. And here, I mean, in a very general sense, not any particular view of the eschatological outcomes in the future, just that there is an outcome and uh, mm-hmm. and broadly it's heaven or hell. Okay. And mm-hmm. so um, I started out putting together a talk that I called Credo, C-R-E-D-O. It means I believe. Okay. And uh, the idea was, it was very, very left brain Wait a second. Yeah, it was very left brain the way I put it. In. Very, very organized in a very particular yeah. way. And and um, and I had these different options. Here's theism. Here's deism. Here's pantheism. Here's here's the Trinity. And here's all these things that I'm working out in 
plowing through. And I gave the talk many times and a lot of people really enjoyed it. So I wanted to make a book out of it eventually, but it kept kind of going through iterations. I'm working on it and expanding it and developing it. And then we hit in the early 2000s, that whole postmodern deal hit, you know, the whole story mm -hmm. thing. And I was right. really dragging my feet on writing these, the staff with the book and the staff even put on a piece of paper, wrote Credo, like a title. And here's, they made a, a, a crayon cover for the book and put it in a frame and put it up at our office. Like, when are you going to get to this thing? You know, this is all you got here. And so, um, but through the whole process of waiting and thinking and then reorganizing the took, the book took on a very different form. Um, it was still meant to deal with the kinds of things that I thought were the Christian essentials. And what I mean by an essential is the sine qua nons. That is, if you do not believe in this particular thing, you're not a Christian. Okay, because it's a defining mm -hmm. component. Now, that's not a condescension. This is just a, a description of what the words mean. You may be a really nice person, whatever your philosophy or theology, it could even be right in Christianity, but wrong. That's not the point I'm making right now. I'm just saying Christianity is a particular thing. Okay, mm -hmm. and uh, and 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 I ask myself, what are those essential things? And a lot of people think, well, the Trinity and the Blood Atonement and Second sure. the Resurrection or whoever, you know. But it it struck me that um, at the foundation, you got to believe in God. If you don't believe in God, you're not a Christian. Okay, well, there's a foundational move. And as I started putting these things together, I realized that um, I could really identify five different things that represented the core of Christianity, such that if you rejected any of these things, then it wouldn't be appropriate to identify yourself as a, a Christian in the classical sense of the word. <clears throat> and um, And it turns out that those five things represent um, not only core systematic theology issues, um, but they also represent a kind of plot line of a story. Mm -hmm. So uh, the story motif grew out of this uh, whole narrative emphasis in the 2000s with um, the postmodern, you know, everybody's got their own narrative stuff. So I thought, well, this is a, this is a good way to to position this. And uh, and when I started working with these concepts, I realized they fit together and they represent a simple way of understanding the foundation of Christianity the worldview, if you will, the topographical map of reality from the beginning to the end. And those five things are God, man, Jesus, cross, and resurrection. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection. And here I mean the final resurrection to reward or punishment. And uh, so... Hmm. And when you think about it, that's actually our plot line. Uh, our story starts with God. Then he's the most important part of the story. The story is about him. It's not about us. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then he made human beings to be in friendship with him. But man got himself in a heap of trouble. Okay. <laughs> so God initiates a rescue plan. Key point here. God, in our story, um, and every worldview is a story because it all has central certain components that is meant to explain the nature of reality. In our story, human beings do not rescue themselves. They cannot do that. God must rescue them. Now, this makes our story unique. It doesn't make it true, but at this point, this is a unique detail, okay? Uh, so you've got God, man, the rescue plan is God becoming a man in himself, himself, 
coming down to earth and by the way he lived his life and the way he died on a cross, that's four, will determine what happens to everyone in the final resurrection. God, mm -hmm. man, Jesus cross resurrection so you've got you've got the the plot line and you also have the main points of the christian worldview and all of the essential elements there are certain things you have to believe about god for it to be christian and there are particular things you have to believe about man and and in one sense quite simply made the image of god so valuable but fallen and broken since then, okay, in need of rescue. And then Jesus is the God-man, who he was and what he came to do. Those are the things important to know about Jesus. Who was he? He's the God-man. He was a real human being, but he wasn't just a human being. He was God come down, Emmanuel, God with us. And if you think about all kinds of distortions that go by the name of Christianity in some way are distortions on that particular point. Mm -hmm. Who is Jesus? And what did he come to do? And what he came to do, that would be the person in the work of Christ in more classical terms, is to rescue human beings from the wrath of the Father. Now, this, of course, is controversial now because that's substitutionary atonement. And I wrote a line when I said that in the book that really made people mad. They're reading along and they like it. And I said, he came to save. He didn't come to restore social justice. This is all a complete misunderstanding. And I explained why the text never teaches any such thing. Um, and uh, But he came, if you look at what he said he came to do, and everybody who knew anything about him who said what he came to do, birth narrative stuff, and then Paul reflecting back, etc., he came to, in his words, to seek and to save that which is lost. To save means to rescue from imminent danger. What is the danger? Fasten your seatbelts. Jesus came to rescue us from the Father. Why? Because the Father's the one who's angry. Don't fear him who can kill the body, not the soul. Fear rather him who can throw both body and soul in hell. So this is where I developed the notion under the cross section of the great exchange the, that the uh, reformers talked about, that, that uh, Jesus made a trade. He made a trade with the Father himself for us. We get his righteousness. He gets our sin. That's how we're able to be forgiven. Okay? It's not fair. We get the better end of the deal, but God is willing to do that out of love to rescue those that he loves. And, uh, and our response to that offer determines whether at the end we experience either perfect justice, which is punishment for everything you've ever done wrong and God misses nothing, or perfect mercy, which is forgiveness. Mm for everything we've ever done wrong, and God misses nothing. So there you see kind of a sketch of the story. Uh, the story motif was really fun for me, because I don't write like that. And um, I I honestly spent a lot of time in C.S. Lewis, especially Mere Christianity, because he has this winsome voice there that I wanted to um, embody in my own writing, when I did the story of reality. In fact, when I sat down to Wordsmith, I would listen to a British guy reading Mere Christianity um, to kind of get this rhythm. And uh, there were other things I did. I counted all the words in Mere Christianity. I know how many words are in each chapter. I know how many chapters there are. He organized his material in a very accessible and readable way. And he anticipated objections. So he would take a side chapter and do some, I would call soft apologetics. Now, this is the thing that you're probably thinking about. So let me speak to that for a moment, you know, in a very <laughs> conversational way, then address that. So I did the same thing in this book. And I, I think picked it, up on that. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it makes it very readable, and it also allows me to get my apologetics guy in there a little bit and answering challenges that people may be thinking. But uh, but writing in a way that's very accessible, covering the main things, it, it, in a certain sense, it is a, a very accessible systematic theology, very simple, mm-hmm. but, you know, theology proper, that's God. Um, uh, anthropology, the basics there, that's man. Um, Jesus, that would be um, Christology. Then you've got soteriology with the cross, and you've got eschatology, a very basic look at how does this all pan out. So now we're going somewhere. Okay, and this is a story. I want them to understand that this is a like, and I tried to capture the narrative sense of it as we're moving through different aspects of it. Obviously, massive parts of the story are left out. Massive chunks of theology to go from man to Jesus is like it's going from Genesis three to the Gospels, right? So there's a lot that's left out, but um, it's the subtitle is uh, the story of reality: uh, how the world began how it ends, and everything important that happens in between. It's not everything that happens in between. <laughs> it's everything that important that happens in between. And so this yeah. is a book that is, a, I think, a great discipleship book because it gives this foundation that when you learn other things later on, you know where to plug these things in. These things kind of make sense. They're all tied together. And what, I, uh, what captures me about <clears throat> the Christian story is that first of all it doesn't start once upon a time it's 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 a story that's a true story it's mm-hmm. it's a history you know so i i make the clarification uh this is the the myth that really happened as lewis the true myth mm-hmm. as yeah. lewis would put it mm-hmm. um but that there's a there's a there's a magnificent elegance to the story when you understand its coherence its cohesiveness how it all fits together and it's not hard to do I mean, I, I, a middle schooler could read this easily. Yeah, right. I mm-hmm. had maybe you know Lisa yeah. Childers, Lisa Childers, uh, who wrote uh, another gospel and is a yeah, yeah. Okay, Lisa said she book. would read this to her children at bedtime. You know, like a bedtime story. Well, I said, what to put them to sleep? And I said, no, no, they really liked listening to it. And I've had others tell me the same thing. So there is a kind of a quality about it that that it worked very hard to create that that um it flows smoothly i mean this was my goal and the feedback that i've got is that i you know i hit the mark on that one and i'm glad to hear that so um so this it started out as a very uh left uh, left brain kind of project and it, it evolved into a a very in my view kind of a right for especially for me a right brain more affective expression of the same content and so it it totally changed the um the 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 feel of the of the book uh, the the texture of the whole thing and i think then not only the readability but the uh and accessibility but the impact of it one last thing i'll tell you is that the i had purpose to call it credo okay so i'm working through like second or third chapter or fourth and i'm sending jay warner wallace jim you, who you know, and uh, we've been friends a long time. I'm sending him the rushes, you know, just to get a pat on the back. He's not going to edit or anything, but he'll say, oh, all right, you're good going. It sounds good. So we, I'm halfway through the book, and uh, we're having dinner together, and he leans over. Now, you guys know who Jim Wallace is, right? Yeah. 
Yep. Yeah, okay. So former... He was on TV for a long time doing cold cases. Oh, yeah, yeah, and now yeah, he's an apologist, right? right? Yeah. Yeah, yep. he's yeah, and he's, he's he awesome. wasn't he was an atheist and then he uses detective skills to assess the eyewitness accounts and the scripture he became a Christian and wrote a book called Cold Case and cold Christianity. Yeah. And then he's written yep. like three or four others. But he's a cop, right? You know, so yeah. he, he leans over the table, he says, dude, you can't call that big Credo. That's a stupid <laughs> title. Nobody's gonna buy your book. <laughs> You're gonna get a couple of geeky theological types are gonna buy your book. You got to change the name. Okay, so um, so I, as I saw, I thought I it was a good Andy, title. See, because you're the geeky theological type, Andy. Anyway, so it really took him about sixty seconds to persuade me. Now, the story of reality was the subtitle of the book, uh, Credo: The Story of Reality. Right? I believe. Okay. Well, <clears throat> it just didn't hunt. I, I, he was absolutely right. So I said, okay, let's make it the story of reality, and um, and then uh, then I now I need a subtitle. So I went to the very first chapter and the opening paragraph. I actually got from the I I, I kind of got the inspiration for the opening paragraph from the Peter Pan movie, this more recent Peter Pan movie, which is a little bit gruesome and violent. Anyway, it starts out like a fairy tale thing. You know, there was a time oh. when this, that, and the other thing, whatever it was. I thought that's great. So I went online after I saw the movie and I found the trailer, the beginning thing. I wrote it all down and then I used that as a foil for my opening. And the way the opening goes is something like, I want to tell you a story about how the world began how it ends, and everything important that happens in between. It's a story that many people are familiar with, but 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 few actually understand, including those who call the story their own. So this is starts with this Ooh. kind of like fa fairy tale feel to it that I stole from this movie. What I stole was the foil. Okay, I mean it's the imprint. <laughs> I didn't plagiarize it, just so you know. But this is how this is how things are created. There, there are variations of things, and so then I plucked that segment of the first sentence and added it to the uh to the title and now i got my new title and i sent it to the publisher and my editor said oh that title's too long well i know there's all kinds of books that have sold a lot that have a long uh title you know the story of the girl who cook kicked the the anthill or whatever those things are you know these all <laughs> bunch of stories like that so um you know I, I and he's back and forth why don't you just pull this word or that i said ryan I'm emailing back. I said, Ryan, just read it out loud. The story of reality, how the world began, how it ends, and everything important that happens in between. I think that sounds great. It's got a nice <laughs> euphony to it. I mean, euphony is really good for titles and for writing and everything. And he read it and he said, okay, we'll stick with it. And then after it came out, Oz Guinness sent me a note and he said, hey, that's a really great title. You know, so I thought that's, oh. <laughs> that's super. Oh. But, but I was convinced. Well done. <laughs> so, so this is just, I mean, this is a lot of background information, you know, but it's, um, you asked me how this thing all got started and yeah. what I was trying to do with it. And <clears throat> I think most people don't get to see behind the scenes and a little bit into the mind of the creative process mm -hmm. that produces something that they might've read and liked. It's a, it's a lot of work and there's a whole lot of things you think about to try to have a certain effect. The effect being this reads like it was really easy to write. Mm -hmm. But in fact, <laughs> that takes a it lot was of hard. Work. To accomplish yeah, that. Yeah. So anyway, so there's there's your general uh, background, yeah. Charlie, and uh, we can go into more yeah. detail if you want, but that kind of sets the stage. Yeah, well, I I appreciate that, and I, that fascinates me too. We we are all aspiring uh, writers, and uh, I think we can agree with your sentiment that uh, 
you know, as you try to craft those things, it's a lot more difficult than people uh, or even us even think sometimes. And mm-hmm. so and you, you got into this, but in your first chapter, you you say, you know, what is Christianity? You kind of pose this question. Right. And you you start talking about, well, it's a picture of reality. It's, it's a worldview. And uh, Andy teaches apologetics and worldview. So I'm sure he has some questions down that road. Mm-hmm. But maybe I'll just throw the softball out and whoever wants to hit it, we can start pinging it around. You know, that, that idea of worldview, why is that so crucial for us to start having those types of conversations today? Where do we see those types of worldview issues coming up in our modern culture? Mm-hmm. Do you want, in fiction want me books. to start? In, and in fiction, <laughs> did, you, did you want to start on that, Timothy? In Aragon. That was not You can go ahead now. Notice the here you got a fantasy book with a name from Tolkien, Aragon, Strider, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. anyway, so there's a there's kind of a borrowing going on there, and I'm sure he's influenced by this. Um, I think sometimes it's hard to talk about worldviews because people talk about it in different ways that I think are confusing. Okay, even to say that everyone has a worldview, um, I think there's a truth to that. That is, everybody has an understanding of kind of what's going on. But part of the problem is their worldview is not coherent at all. So they have, in other words, the pieces don't fit together in a neat way. Um, you can have people that say they're Christians, for example, and believe in reincarnation. Well, I know they've never put their puzzle together before because there's no puzzle place like reincarnation that fits in Christianity. It doesn't right. do any work for us. It's like trying to put a carburetor on a computer. It's a completely foreign detail, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So they've got a worldview, but it's a it's a mishmash and they don't realize it because they're not trying to think coherently. Now, more formal religious views um, uh, and other more formalized worldviews like atheism, um, these are, they make, they work more, they work harder at trying to create a coherent view and it, it all fits together. So reincarnation doesn't fit in Christianity. It fits maybe in Hinduism or in Buddhism or something because of the rest. It's like an erector set of sorts. It's this big piece that, and it, these parts all work together and some parts don't fit. Go ahead. What do you think about the person that says you can't put all the pieces together? I remember you addressing that in your book. Well, I, I would ask the question why he would think that's the case. I mean, this is a this is a, one of the a tactical questions from another book, but I, I, I oh, wonder yeah. why why hmm. why would you think you can't push all the pieces together? Okay. <laughs> and here, let me just back up for a minute. Now there is a philosophical commitment here, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're what's called an ontic relativist, okay, that means reality makes no sense at all. The nature of reality, foundational reality makes no sense, okay? It's absurd. Well, well, I don't know how anybody can say that with any conviction. I don't know why they would believe that, you know, uh, or you have, uh, and therefore, all you have is perspectival assessments of reality, okay? So I I don't know why anybody say that. It seems to me that reality exists and it's out there. We're perceivers. We're trying to figure out what it's like. So reality has a certain structure to it. All right. And we have the tools that are we are capable of of discovering that we have empirical means of doing that. We have rational Mm -hmm. means of doing that. And we have ways of testing that. Okay, I had a note from Darcy about an event that would start at 
one o'clock my time and I would be able to connect with these three stooges by pushing this <laughs> button with the right number on it, right? So I dropped the number in and pushed the button and there you were. So it's logical words, and empirical. Yeah, well, the, 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 the key, not the three stooges, but the, uh, the process, <laughs> that's where you are. Correct. It's a very simple <laughs> example of how we have a, a capability of testing something to determine whether what we believed in this case, in my case, the appointment and the way to connect with the people in the appointment to do the podcast. It's and a way there of testing you just brought... to see whether it's a feature of the world itself. Okay. And you just brought belief into that conversation. So you had the rational and the empirical, but then you just brought belief into it. Yes, too. right. But I, I want to, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, uh, when I say believe, I'm using it in the philosophic sense. And all a belief there is, it, it is a holding that something is so. Okay. It's not knowing it's so, but it's thinking it's so. And there, that means our life, our lives are filled with belief and every mm -hmm. feature of knowledge entails a belief that it's so, you know, you probably know knowledge is classically justified true belief. You can't know something unless you believe it first, but there are, there are beliefs that are warranted and there are beliefs that aren't, that would be blind belief or blind faith. So we're using my, my point, broader point here is that the world has a structure and it seems like we have the tools that we can discover its basic outlines. Okay. And this is what religious claims amount to. They mean to tell you how the world is. Now, the reason this is such an important point for the book, and I don't talk in such philosophical terms in the book about this, obviously, mm -hmm. um, right. but I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking to three stooges i'm talking to three really smart guys so we can you know we could use the all the two-bit hoity-toity language here that <laughs> i paid a lot of money to learn those words so i'm going to use them once in a while <laughs> um, um what i want people to this is so great <laughs> <laughs> i want people to understand <clears throat> that we're not just making this up we're not just picking something we like we are not relativizing our views and that's the key People want to relativize all religious thinking. Well, that's your view. Well, that's mm -hmm. your belief. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you found something for yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to find something for myself. I'm not trying to have a belief that makes me feel good. I want to know what the world is actually like. And what Christianity is, <clears throat> excuse me, is not an inside kind of thing, first and foremost. It's an outside kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And this was true for Jesus, too. Now, we think of religion being an insight. Here's how I feel. Here's how God does for me. Here's my life that's changed and all these internal things. All those are important. But none of those matter if the beliefs that we have on the inside do not match reality on the outside. Because if Jesus is not who we think he is, and if he didn't rise from the dead, as Paul says, we're most people to be pitied because we're believing falsely about something that really matters. So my claim there at the beginning is, and I don't make the case in the book, because that's an apologetics task that I, I don't engage except for mildly in the book. I just want people to understand first that Christianity is a claim about the way the world actually is. Mm -hmm. Even if nobody believes it, it's still that way. It's not mind-dependent. It's mind-independent. It's objectively true. And secondly, here is what that looks like in a in a bare bones kind of way that was what i wanted them to get
So that you know, correlation. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go, no, go ahead, Tim. Well, you made that kind of dichotomy between the inside and the outside. And I think maybe just a little clarification might be good there. Like okay. the inside is affecting the outside, right? Isn't that what you said? The inside affects the outside so that your no. belief system affects how you live your life. Was that what you're saying oh, or no, no? That's not, no, I'm not, I'm talking more about epistemology here, not practical living. What I'm, okay. what I'm talking about is that uh, the claim, uh, I think we're talking about epistemology here. And yeah, what, it, I, yeah. what I, what I, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm trying to point out at this point, and I do agree with your point there, uh, Tim, that mm -hmm. what you believe in the outside is going to affect how you live your life. But it is, I make the inside-outside distinction. To me, that's one of the simplest ways to to clarify a difficult topic. And clearly, I, I didn't clarify it. I muddied the waters with it. So let me speak with more, more clarity about it, okay? Um, the idea of objective truth is based on the notion that the truth claims are mind-independent. No mind is necessary to believe the world to be a certain way if the world is that way. Okay, gravity is easy to think about. Mm. Is gravity in our minds and our belief, or is it part of the real world? Well, I don't know. If you quit believing in gravity, would you float away? Mm. No. So it's not inside you. It's outside of you. Outside of you. Gotcha. Objective reality. It's not subjectively so. Mm. And so this, when a truth is subjective that means mm -hmm. it's dependent on your thinking in your mind and if you change the mind you change the truth okay that's the way people think about religion and they way they think about ethics okay but if it's objectively so it doesn't matter who believes it or doesn't believe it it's still the case mm -hmm. and so our claim and this is the critical point the claim we make as classical christians is that our views are true in that sense. Schaefer used to call it true truth, okay? He had to capitalize it because of the confusion between relativistic truth and uh, and objective truth. And now the culture is living principally in the relativistic domain. It's uh, 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 expressive individualism. It's authenticity. It's you do you. It's all right. in here. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what's out there. It doesn't even matter what sex organs you have out there. It matters what you have in, in here. Your head. Mm -hmm. That's what determines reality. So you see okay. how that plays out. Yep. And that, Very and that good question. Is, uh, I appreciate it, Tim. That's mm -hmm. a huge deal. I know we've talked about this probably way too much, but that is the kind of the crux of what Lewis is pointing out in Abolition of Man, is you can make a statement about something you're looking at, is that a statement of just the way that I feel internally and it has no bearing on whether that waterfall actually is sublime or not, or is that waterfall actually that thing? Yeah. You know, that, that, that is the, the launching point for abolition mm -hmm. of man and the mm -hmm. ransom trilogy. So, you know, I, anyway. I have a little anecdote to tell you at this point. It's kind of funny. Um, I did a debate at, uh, uh, University of Toronto, I, I can't, John, I can't remember the name of the professor, but he, we were debating on moral relativism. And so that's the kind of issue we're talking about here, inside, outside, with regards to morality. And his claim as a relativist was morality is all inside. There is no objective morality. And then he, I don't know why he did this, but he was using beauty as an example. And, and we're in Calgary, right? And right out there, the mountains, they're a gorgeous mountain range. And, um, and he's saying, yes, we just, we just smear 
our concept of beauty on the physical things that we say are beautiful. Okay. So now he's relativizing beauty. All right. Oh, boy. I think it was a huge mistake because it didn't help us cause any. And a lot of people are going to think, wait a minute, I think those mountains are really beautiful, which is a point that I made. But here's right. the funny part. The next morning, this is Saturday evening, the next morning, I'm in a church getting ready to be introduced to speak. And I think of something I could have said. I didn't say it. And I wouldn't say it even if I thought about then. You'll see why in a moment. But I thought of this and I started laughing and they're calling my name to have and I'm in the in the pew laughing, 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 because what I thought of is what if I said, uh, Professor, I'm I'm I understand the point that you're making about smearing beauty on something that is totally internal. So I have a question. Have you ever told your wife that she was beautiful? <laughs> and if you did, did you were you careful to tell her what you meant? That you were just smearing something on her and it had nothing to do with it. Now, okay, so you're chuckling like I was getting introduced, you know, to do my sermon. But uh obviously I could not have said that it would have been a very poor taste, but it would have been a fair comment in light yeah. of the claim. And it does make the point that lots of times when people are trying to ad aggressively advance relativism, it it does not comport with our common sense understanding mm -hmm. of the nature of reality. Mm -hmm. and a big part of the book that a uh, point that I was trying to make in, in the book is that I'm telling you how this is, but I only need soft apologetics because the basic framework of the story of reality, which is the Christian story, comports with our deepest intuitions about the way the world is. And when you have a match between our beliefs or intuitions about the world and the way the world is, that's the classical definition, as you know, of truth correspondence. Mm -hmm. And uh, and anyway, that, that's something I think that comes across in the book. Holly Ordway, her testimony, I don't know if you've ever heard it. Oh, she says something. I interviewed her. And in fact, uh, well, I'll tell you something about that in a minute. No, she just, we read um, in apologetics class, we read hers and another person's testimony. Just, it's like three page testimony, short thing yeah. that was on yeah, Christianity yeah. Day it's a while back. It's a wonderful book. Yeah. Not God's and, type. No, the, and well, I, I don't read that. That's we just have like a little, yeah, we have a little like web clipping that oh, she put up I as see. a short okay. form of it. Oh, but okay. in it, she explains, she talks about beauty. And as an atheist, oh, yes, right. She, that was a huge hard thing difficult thing for her to answer and she said even though taste like around the world change she said i couldn't imagine a society that thought i should throw dirt on the floor it would make it look better in here or exactly. like when the sunset goes off oh why is this guy doing those ugly color changes right and i think for her that was like the outside part like this i know like no matter who you are this is what you're going to think so I just thought that went along with what you were saying. Uh, there. Uh, pretty, I love, well. yes, exactly. And uh, she was also a, a moral realist. She wasn't a relativist and she couldn't make any sense of that. And yeah. uh, it turns out, if I, I've read her book, I've interviewed her and uh, she's at HBU right now, I think. But anyway, mm -hmm. she, in in the, the book, um, well, the person who led her to the Lord was a stand to reason guy. And hmm. um, very oh, interesting no story about him. Yes, he lives in San Diego and he's a fencing instructor. I was looking. Yeah, the, the fencing coach. Yeah, yeah. She, oh no she way. Did. She did. That's and it took him two years to lead her to the to the Lord. But I, I was looking in my my notes here for his name. But um, so I run into him now and again, and there's other stories associated with him. But um, he, um, she asked him one time, what. What's the final deal? I mean, what's the end game here? What is this all leading to? And he says, 
perfect justice or perfect mercy. Mm. Either perfect oh. justice or perfect mm. mercy. Now, uh, mm. I titled a chapter, Perfect Justice and One Perfect oh. Mercy. And I got it from him, and I, I did footnote him, but that's why I was looking in my footnotes. Where did I put that? You know, uh, He's a wonderful guy. I just saw him a few years ago. Well, it wasn't a footnote. It was well, an endnote, Greg, which I want to talk to you about your endnotes. Oh, okay. My, I, oh, that's right. It was, does your publisher make you make, no. use endnotes? Uh, I actually, oh, come on. I, I, it's the a reason way I nicely, book, Andy. This, I, I, as a reader, I prefer footnotes. You're right. That's a fair Amen. distinction. Amen. But keep in mind the kind of book this was. Yep. Exactly. Uh, I, I didn't yep. have headings either for this book because headings makes it look like a nonfiction book. I wanted mm. it to look like a story. And so I have, in fact, it, my original submission, I didn't have any footnote numbers at all. I just had asterisks and the asterisks then alert you to the chapter. And there's notes in the back that you can find the reference, but mm. uh, they made the footnotes. So the end notes references so small, they didn't interfere. And so everything went in the back of the book. Gotcha. But um, anyway, I, I, I I, I'm embarrassed. I can't remember his name, but it's funny you mentioned Holly because when he said that, I thought it captured so perfectly, in a nutshell, the the eschatological reality: either perfect justice or perfect mm -hmm. mercy. And I used the terminology even a little while ago when I was explaining mm -hmm. the the end of the story. And um, and uh, so you know, <laughs> it's so funny that those two would connect in this way since we're talking about the book tactics. Well, I really liked um, – so when it came to this book, what I really liked is you, you've told us that you tried to oh, make I'm it sorry. as a story. I tactics. I'm sorry. I'm at the oh, yeah. reality. Yeah. Um, okay. The way you wrote this, what, what I was going to say is that I think it helped me to not realize it, but you're sort of narrating your own thoughts along the way, and you're doing what Lewis does. You're anticipating it, and without without really trying too hard, I was thinking the same logical path you were. And sometimes people write books that are very heady and there's big issues and you just have the hardest time following. I thought mm. that was one of the strengths of this book. Thank it was you. not hard to follow. And it would mm -hmm. it really was, like you said, a story. So narrative really is, mm -hmm. I think, good at doing that sort of thing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. When it came to your puzzle illustration, I've used that in class in apologetics. So like there's this big puzzle in sort of our worldview. What I really liked about your illustration was the idea of having multiple puzzles and trying to use the pieces together. Mm -hmm. So here you have a puzzle piece from this puzzle over here and a puzzle piece from this over here, and you're trying to fit them together, but they just don't fit. And I thought that like borrowing the Christian worldview was mm -hmm. good. Yeah. Thank you. So we're, we're accustomed to thinking like this. Like mm -hmm. we know this is important. How do you, or do you have any thoughts or advice? There are other people who I think some people just think that what they think is what the world is. And they're not thinking that there's like worldview considerations so like maybe i'm understanding reality wrong like you know neo in the matrix he's in the matrix he doesn't really know he's in the matrix and know there's another option out there when mm -hmm. you've spoken with people have you ever found people who just they're not really thinking this way and is there ways that you can help in a conversation to get them thinking this way yes um well, this is where another book that I've written, Tactics, that I accidentally referenced a few moments ago. Uh, <laughs> oh, but it's such a good books. book. But, Reference it also, all the time. It's, it's great PR if I keep using the wrong name. But the um, <laughs> uh, what um, this is where using questions is really important, especially, and I have a new book coming out in June called Street Smarts, uh, using questions to answer Christianity's toughest challenges. So the the point there is, when people have worldviews that are incoherent, um, 
if we begin asking questions about those worldviews that are incoherent, then we can hopefully get them to start thinking about their problems of their world. There, there's help them to feel the uh, um, the 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 tension between the way they say the world is uh, and the way the world actually is, or the different ways they say the world is that doesn't fit together. Okay, and um, so if you have an atheist who is a materialist who is making all kinds of moral judgments about politics or Christians or religious people or God of the Bible or whatever. This is where a question is in order. So I'm kind of curious. You think the God of the Bible is is really evil. Yeah, look at all this stuff. But you're an atheist, right? Yeah, of course I'm an atheist. That's why I'm an atheist. Okay, well, I'm here, I'm confused. What confuses you? I'm trying to figure out where you're getting the moral standard in a materialistic worldview that you're using to judge the guide of the Bible. Can you help me right. out with that? So now that puts the, the now, of course, you know, I, I've got this little innocent persona while I'm doing it, but you know, where exactly where I'm going. It has mm -hmm. to do with the coherence, <clears throat> pardon me, of, of the world he claims to live in and the things that he's saying. Obviously what he's mm -hmm. doing is smuggling in pieces from a different worldview, mm -hmm. ours, or any theistic worldview into a, a, a worldview where this makes no sense. Now, why does he do this? And this is where I'll go back to Francis Schaeffer again, because he's made the image of God and he has to live in God's mm -hmm. world, because mm -hmm. that is reality. That mm -hmm. is reality. And he can't get out. And mm -hmm. people do this all the time. They do this all the time. They, <clears throat> they talk from within their worldview as consistently as possible, but then they start, when they're not guarding philosophical turf, they start talking about other things that reflects a kind of common sense moral realism, for example, when they when they have no grounding for it. Why are you talking like that? Well, and I had one atheist on the air who's raising this issue, and he wanted to make, well, morality comes from evolution. Okay. Now, I, I don't think that's even possible on the merits, but it, there's other, there are a number of problems with it. But let's see if it were possible. Even if I agreed, I said, so what you're saying is the God of the Bible comports in a way, himself in a way that doesn't agree with the way you evolved. And he said, yeah. Right. Well, I, I said, I rest my case. When you think about that, that's not a substantive complaint. Maybe the Hebrews evolved a different way. Well, well, where, where, you, where do you get off saying everybody's got to evolve the same attitudes you have? This is, it, it shows how how um paltry that objection turns out to be but mm -hmm. um but anyway so but there was some questions there and so that's how i mm -hmm. maneuver in these conversations okay. i if you're aware of the conflict either within the worldview things aren't working together well or a conflict between their worldview and the way they're talking about the real world then you start asking questions and I have to say, I love your book, Tactics. I use it in my apologetics class. Mm. It's Listener, if you haven't bought the book yet and haven't read it, you really should. It's super simple. And, it's very helpful. And they can go and, back and listen to our previous episode <laughs> exactly, where we talked where we about talk. it. Um, but I, And I would say um, one of the strengths, I think, of both tactics and then reality. Um, and by the way, at times I feel like you grow mutton chops and just channel an inner Francis Schaefer at times, Greg. Just, I, I feel like he starts to come out of you really well, hard. That's really sweet to say that because yeah. I have a tremendous <laughs> amount of respect and he has had a, a yeah. great influence mm -hmm. on me. 
but I, and I would say that the the strength of these two books is that um, I think sometimes Christians feel like they have to to prove something, and then we do. But it's it's you're you're doubling down on this is what reality is. Right. There's a, a apologist I'm sure you know who I'm talking about, who when talking about postmodernism, which is not reality, says you know postmodernism and all that, but no one's a postmodernist when they're reading the instructions on a bottle of aspirin. That's right, right, or and, or, uh, and, or building a building. Yeah, yeah, and that and so like what you're saying is you're guarding turf, and then over here when you're living, and you're like living yeah. in reality, this is how you live. So yeah, you know, well, I, I appreciate that. Thank you, thank you. That's a really nice compliment. I think it's Ohio State University has got a big building there that's the postmodern building, and it's all funky cubes and sticking out in all different ways. But all of it has to comport with the building codes and the laws of physics, or else it falls down. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's true. So yeah, it's you, all just yep. an illusion. Right. Mm. There's nothing relativistic about that. It's a very yeah. inside them type of building, not a very outside type of building. <laughs> and yet oh, it has brother. to be. <laughs> well, I think we should get someone to doodle you like mashed up with Francis Schaefer's look. Oh. I just think that would be a great little sticker that you could sell on STR, you know. Just saying. I, I got Yikes. to meet Francis Schaefer in 1976 at La in a little town of Waymo up there in the Swiss Alps. And uh, I'd already read a lot of his, I mean, everything that I could get my wow. hands on. And uh, then I sat in on, uh, in fact, I took notes of this event, this occasion, and I just read them a couple of weeks ago because I have a diary about it. But I actually sat in on a Q&A session that he gave in the uh, Labrie Chapel where he's sitting up on the fireside hearth and the fire's going on. And, and all of us hippie type people from all over the world are sitting on the floor at the feet of the master, not all Christians either, and asking whatever questions come to mind. And uh, and he's there doing his best to answer the questions. It was a fascinating evening. Um, but uh, so I had a brief brush with the man himself. Wow, that's <laughs> really that's really cool. That's really cool. Can I ask a side question unrelated to writing and apologetics? Can I talk to you about reading? You yeah. seem very well read. And so both times we've had you on, you've not just talked about one book, you've talked about more than one book and your writing books. Huh. Do you have any advice to our listeners uh, <laughs> about how to read books and how to read them regularly? I, or, I, or are you like, no, I never read books. The only no. ones you know about are the ones I've talked about and that's it. <laughs> no, I'm chuckling because I do not consider myself a well-read person. Um, but I, uh, so I, I appreciate the compliment. Uh, you never want to disagree with somebody who's giving you a compliment. No, that's stupid, man. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm not, I, I would not consider myself well-read. I don't know if you know Ken Samples. So Ken Samples reads three hours a day religiously, you know. Wow. Uh, and he just okay. really, really, so he's a well-read guy. And Amy Hall is well-read on the Stan Teresa's staff. John Noyes also on our staff. I read um, somewhat for pleasure and somewhat for necessity when things come up and I've got to do some writing. And so I re read Live Not By Lies, for example, because I, I, I needed to have a clearer understanding of things that are happening in the culture partly to be well equipped, better equipped in addressing it, and also for things I was writing. And I also interview people. So I have to do, uh, I have to read the book. I do read the books when I interview people. And uh, sometimes, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wasn't, uh, no hint, hint on that one, no nudge, nudge on Tim, Tim Little over there. But, uh, uh, but I, I um, it, 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 look at, there's a, not everybody who does interviews is able to do it. It's just a time demand. So, yeah. um, but I, I just find that I need to do that. Now, I don't read every word 
Um, but I have a, um, a kind of my own way of a speed reading. And um, and some things I read really carefully. Live Not By Lies, I read every word. Other things I just read more quickly. I just interviewed um, Sean McDowell on a book that he's written. And it was actually a very basic kind of book. So I was just, okay, I, I've, I understand that argument. I get that thing. And so I'm skimming through things. Um, I've just written a solid ground, I think, coming out, just came out in November, just two days ago, this is a piece that that was on our website at str.org, and it's called, ironically, since you ask, how to read less more, how to read less more. And the oh, idea of the, the idea of the title is don't try to read a lot of books and then forget them. You read through one, you forget it, you read through another. Read fewer books that are better and read them more thoroughly. <clears throat> and so huh. what I do is I trade on some things from from the the classic how to read a book and i talk about pre-reading you know skimming through yeah. just how they feel mm -hmm. it, then then yep. reading and, uh, and then post reading and, and making notes and making a little outline of the chapter or little descriptions uh about uh what the chapter is meant to cover or so if you give a after you uh you you go through a book you write a one sentence that says this book is about and then you write that in the fly leaf of the book for example, and I'm looking at the Lord's Prayer here, and I didn't actually do that. This book is about the Lord's Prayer, you know. But what is the author trying to accomplish okay. with the book? And uh, and then at the in in in, uh, in the case of, uh, can you see that? See, I oh I yeah, have, I have a quick in my own words mm -hmm. a summary. I'm, my book's in front of mm -hmm. the microphone there right. uh, of what the chapter's about. So uh, books that I really want to understand well, I'm going to do that, okay? And so now I could just read a couple sentences at the beginning of each chapter and kind of get a review, a quick review of the book, all right? So um, I'm not a fast reader. Uh, hmm. So uh, I, when it comes to reading this kind of stuff, you know, I'm going to be marking it, interacting. Some people never mark their books. I can't I can't understand that at all. The more plebeians, marks you make I tell on you, book, plebeians. the more mark you make on your mind. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the way I look at it. So I mm -hmm. would say, um, who is it? Les Solomon says in Ecclesiastes about the, you know, the burden of so many books. Well, that was, you know, 1300, 3000 years ago or something. It's gotten a lot worse since then. And <laughs> so the, the, I suggest people try to read good stuff. <laughs> really mm -hmm. good stuff. And so I have the really good stuff and then I have fun stuff. And a lot of the fun stuff I read is war stuff. I like reading war. uh first person battle experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's second world war mostly eastern theater, some western theater, um I like uh, I used to read a bit on the civil war but that was about 25 years ago. I've moved past that now but I just there's something about that those things that hmm. appeal to me as a man and um and the courage and the, the the sacrifice that is made and none of these people consider themselves heroes they they consider them as that well, here's what they said i was just doing my job i was just mm -hmm. doing my job i was doing what was expected of me to help my country or to help my fellow soldiers or whatever and i think this is an attitude that is largely lost on this generation you know, mm -hmm. John Kennedy said it in his uh, first inaugural. What's that's the only one he had. Um, Ask not what your country can do for you. But I remember this. I was 10 years old when it happened. Mm -hmm. But when, when uh, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And so, gee, that's a whole different mentality than we have had 
almost ever since. And so um, that's why I, I like those stories, you know, uh, those accounts of, of heroism, etc. So I have my fun reading. And I usually do that when I'm lying in bed at night. And uh, of course, then I'm dreaming about Nazis. That's not so good. But uh, last, <laughs> last night, I was dreaming about hobbits. So yeah, Hey, better. way better, way yeah, better. So much better. Yeah, so yeah. Much but better. then you got Sauron with that big eye, you know, looking down at you. So it's got its moments too. But that that would be my recommendation. Uh, find books that are really worth reading, and some of these are from older authors. I think Lewis is among the best, you know, mm -hmm. and he's not even that old in terms of literature. I mean, I you know go back a hundred years, two hundred years. You want theologians, you know, read Hodge. You know, read Turretin, you know, read guys that that really were working hard at thinking well about these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, it, it, but there's popular books. I mean, I write them. You guys are involved in that kind of stuff. You sell books. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. So, you know, um, uh, there's a lot of stuff out there, but it, you, you, there's a limited amount of time. So use your time well and learn the things that are going to make the most difference in your life. Tim? Yeah, I really like what you brought together there. And that might even be a nice um, connection. So that Aragon book that I was reading through, when I was working through your book, I just kept coming back to the worldview that that book is articulating. And one of the strengths of that book is that it does promote self-denial and sacrifice mm -hmm. for the greater good of truth and mm -hmm. goodness. And yeah. what they're borrowing from our terms, like just they're using our puzzle pieces to use yeah. your analogy. That's exactly mm -hmm. what they're doing. So that's one strength of the book, but their worldview that they're articulating is, is not the Christian worldview. And that's where I think your book is actually like perfectly poised to that kind of a readership. Mm -hmm. Its language is very easy. I remember working through, I think it was like the problem of evil, or maybe it was even hedonism or something. I'm like, oh, he's just talking about hedonism, but he's not using that word. Because if I gave that book to like my 14 year old son and your book, um, I believe he would be able to understand it. Mm -hmm. I think he could just read through it. And particularly after he's read a book like the Aragon, the inheritance cycle. Mm -hmm. Okay. He would be able to hopefully digest and see the problems with mm -hmm. um, that kind of uh, right. fictional literature. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the real strengths of your book. As, uh, and that's where I'm going to even be promoting it in our bookstore. And, and we'll encourage our, our uh, listeners to read it, particularly, um, well, for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably have I am. I'm going to have my sons read it, particularly after the reading through the working through the inheritance cycle. Um, and then our listenership that's just like, well, I don't really understand this terminology, worldview stuff. I would strongly recommend your book here, Story of Reality. We're going to have it on store on sale in our bookstore. So mm -hmm. um, jump on our website and pick up a copy and uh, be grounded. Use um, use the Christian worldviews puzzle pieces. Mm -hmm. It's the right worldview. It's the mm -hmm. right puzzle pieces. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. Tim, you, you said I, jump on the website. You have a website? FBBCbooks.com. FBBCbooks.com. I, I didn't remember what it was, so I wanted to mm -hmm. make sure. Thanks, I, I, I need to know what that is. Yeah. Jump in, Andy. I, had, I just had one more thought that I wanted to, to ask you about. So, And maybe this is in the beginning. I read it three months ago, and so I may have forgotten. But I think you were trying to spell out the worldview, the Christian worldview for people who perhaps are Christians but don't really understand it. Was there ever a sense in your mind, uh, William Lane Craig wrote his book uh, On Guard, and it was so simple that Christians were giving it to unbelievers. And so he had written some things in there that wasn't meant for unbelievers, so he rewrote it as a student's guide. 
was this intended for a Christian audience only, or did you purposely assume that maybe Christians would be handing this off to people who are just interested in Christianity? The second, uh, it was, okay. t- I had two audiences in view here. <laughs> okay. That's what I wondered. Christians and non-Christians. <laughs> okay. Hey, everybody, all of them. Everybody Good would job. like to say their book is for everyone, but I, I, I wanted Christians to have a very clear sense of the foundation of their of their uh their worldview whether they thought about it in those terms or not how it all fit together so you get the you get the big picture so you never get lost in the pieces again is one way i put it but at the same time every single time that i sat down andy to wordsmith i'm thinking of non-christians i'm thinking how are they going to read this how will they understand it Hmm. and so you know that this is completely bereft of all kinds of christian psychobabble there's none Hmm. there uh there's none in lewis either that you know that i'm really aware of i left all of that out. And I tell people, this is a book that you will not be embarrassed to give to a non-Christian. It doesn't read like a Baptist creed, or a, mm-hmm. if you're Baptist, I'll say a Presbyterian creed, if you're one of Thank the you. Thing, Thank you. Pentecostal <laughs> creed, or anything like that. It it sounds, it, I think it reads like a person talking about the nature of the world, and uh, foundational things, and obviously religious things, Jesus and God, and it's all mm-hmm. built in there. There are biblical realities that are built in there, but I'm just trying to, to do it from an uh, like a narrative voice so it's very accessible and i do not trade in that other language at all that's why i call, talk about being rescued not saved mm. not saved everybody says yeah. saved it's so trite it's so dull it's so dusty but rescued oh what a dear yeah it's the same concept but has much more vitality so a lot of that in the book well, as I read yeah. it, I thought I could easily give this to someone I was talking with, or if I had a gospel conversation going, I could be like, hey, do you want to read a book together? Mm-hmm. And this would be a really good, really good option just to get a conversation going and bring stuff up and just keep you on track. So I thought I thought it was, okay, I'm, that, that makes, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, thank you. Charlie? Yeah, I, I got that exact same sense that I could hand this book to, even as we talked about, you know, growing up in a different religious system thinking of some of my family members who I would have different beliefs than them, but we use shared terminology and I could hand this book to them and it would be not only a way to, you know, help them clarify what they themselves think and mean, but Uh it's going to be evangelistic that I, I was, I was going through, I can't remember chapters, but once, once you start talking about Christ and him, mm-hmm. him coming to, to die for us, it's like how, like you, you've built to that point, a story that is so clear. And then you just confronted with, you know, do I believe this is true? Mm-hmm. And, and I, as I was listening through that, I was encouraged like, yeah, this, this is what I think is real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know people that don't. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so I could easily hand this, you know, it's, and it's funny you mentioned, um, reincarnation. There's a, a young gal that works out at my gym and, uh, she's at a community college in our area and she's required to take a religions course. Hmm. And, um, you know, she, it, it's just interesting how, you know, everyone has these conversations, even when they want to avoid them. And and we're having this conversation in between squats, you know, like, so what do you, what do you, what do you think about your religion class? And, oh, I, I, I hate my, my teacher. And I'm like, well, what do you not like about them? Well, it's like their way or the highway, like whatever they say is true. And it, there's nothing else. And, uh, and I said to her, so like, like there's a really narrow way 
that and that's the only way that leads to life but everywhere else is is wrong that's what your teacher thinks that's exactly what my teacher thinks and she doesn't even catch that mm. you know that's like what the bible like christianity claims yeah and, yeah. and you know her her parents are you know really christian christian and um but then of course well what do you believe oh well i believe in reincarnation you know it's like all, all these all these random puzzle pieces all over the place. And you're like, how do you even start to to try and reach that person? So uh, what what occurs to me in that situation there is like, uh, oh, you re- you believe in reincarnation? You think people really do get reincarnated? Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I I think they do. Okay, so if a person doesn't says the reincarnation doesn't happen, they're mistaken, right? Right. Okay. So in other words, it's uh, your way or the highway. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well done. Now, now well I'm done. not trying to be rude to her, but I, but the right. fact is, everybody thinks mm. that their beliefs that they have are true. Yes. Okay. But only one side mm. is getting faulted for it, whatever. So this is just another way. Well, okay. You don't. Then let me. Okay. But so then you don't think it's true. You. I just, loved how you handled this, this in the book. You know, it's like yeah. math. Yeah, that's right. It's math. That's, it's not, yeah, it's it's not it's not bigotry, it's math. That's right. It's math. But um back to your earlier comment, Charlie. I was raised Roman Catholic too. And so I can I, I know the drill there and uh, and I know how difficult it is sometimes to engage them because you want to say, well, Protestantism is true and Catholicism is not. You know, there's these nuances, these really matter. And that's that's a very awkward kind of conversation. But yeah. if what instead of kind of taking exception with the Roman Catholic, you're, they're able to read the book, or a Mormon for that matter, and I, they're worlds apart, I'm not equating the two, but there is a similarity in that they have religious language that's Christian language, and they have different understandings than, uh, than, than say, we would about the, the nature of the truth of these things. Uh, Catholics, of course, much closer to us than, than uh, Mormons, but in any event, so we give them something that they think is broadly within their field, and then they start reading, and if they're taken by it and the Spirit is working, then he is adjusting their theology according yeah. to the truth. Yeah. And hopefully, like a Roman Catholic, I'm interested not in ecclesiology or authority. I'm interested in soteriology. I want them to get the cross mm-hmm. right, which they don't. Yeah. And so when they start realizing the great exchange and how Jesus, you know, to tell us die, it is finished. And that's the good news. God come down, Emmanuel, God with us, and he took that pride. We're now, I mean, that's the kind of thing that made that was meaningful to me as a seeker after I left Catholicism. You could actually know you could be saved. So that's what I'm hoping will, you know, the yeah. truth is going to correct some of those errant theological categories in, in any of those groups that begin thinking like this, that gives them something and that's do. yeah and that's and that's where i was thinking you know like um i started thinking of some family members and i started thinking of this this gal from my gym and you know we all have people like that where if you're like where where do i start here yeah and if you if you go to someone you say hey you want to do a bible study they're going to be like well no i don't you know well they, they probably won't say that especially in the midwest because they'll be way too kind to tell you no mm-hmm. maybe on the coast they'll be like no i don't yeah. want to do that They'll tell you yes, and then they won't show up. Yeah, Midwest Midwest. people are like, oh, sure, yeah, and then you'll never hear from them again. 
but th- this could be a great way to kind of get that that foot in the door yeah. evangelistically because I do think it reads very well. And it's funny because I, I listened to the audible version and this is my last question. Maybe we'll wrap with this. Um, but I, I was listening to it and you narrated it. Mm-hmm. And so, and I'd talked to you before, so I knew kind of your, uh, <laughs> your voice and your temperament. And it's, and it's, so that was interesting listening to it. Um, but it just, it flows very well, like a story and people, people love stories. And so mm-hmm. my thought there was, you know, if, if you have someone that you've been trying to build a bridge with evangelistically, this would be a great, could be a great book to mm-hmm. purchase and say, hey, I just, you know, I think you'll enjoy this and mm-hmm. let the Lord use that as he would. But mm-hmm. talk, just last question, how hard is it to narrate your own book? Did you find that difficult? <laughs> Was it easy for Audible? What, what, well, what did you- it's. It, it's a it's a lot of work on a physical basis. It, it, it just you're you're reading a book in front of a microphone, and uh, not everybody can do that. It's just tedious. But I have 33 re- years of radio, and I in doing radio, I do a, a lot of reading of stuff. I might be taking notes or whatever, and so I'm working off of this, and I can read a text, and it doesn't sound so much like I'm reading. So I have some capability there, and that's a little bit of a speed bump for some people. Then when you're reading for hours on end, that's also challenging. You get tired, you know, <laughs> and you run over the words. But what I... Why this was important to me is that uh, when I wrote Tactics, and that was before I had written The Story of Reality, somebody else did the the read on the original book. Mm -hmm. And then I decided, you know, I listened to a piece of it. I said, that ain't me. You know, mm-hmm. and I thought, okay, this is my work. This I know how to voice this work. Mm-hmm. I know what's important. I know what I'm trying to get across in this line. And so I could, in a in a mild sense, I could dramatize the points much better than yeah. than a foreigner could. I don't know if you've ever listened to any of these um, um, audio Bible reads by actors and actresses. Okay, that drives me nuts. Because they don't understand what they're reading. And so mm. they don't voice it well. They mm. just don't voice it well. So so this is what I wanted to do with the story of reality. And since then, when I had Tactics, uh, the 10th anniversary edition at Edmore, I redid that. And I get now it's all part of the contract. I'm going to read it. It's a lot yep. of work. But I've had a lot of people tell me, uh, like like you did, Charlie, you know, there's just a, a different sense. You've heard my voice before. And some have said it's like sitting there around the fireplace just listening to you talk to me and telling me this story. And I thought that yes. was really sweet. That's what I was after. And uh, so I'm always going to read my books but because I know my own material and I know what I'm trying to get across and uh, I want to voice it well. Uh, to the reader. And I think it's a lot more effective than having even a professional reader who might do well. It's not the same, especially since my voice is somewhat public because yeah. of the years of uh, broadcasting. And I, and I, I think do. I'll, oh, go ahead, Andy. I was just saying, I think I'm going to imagine you, like you just said, sitting by the fire, reading your book with mutton chops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe even a kilt. Who knows? So, Horrendous. <laughs> so no, that, those, those were Lederhosen, I think. Lederhosen. Oh, I knew I'd get that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the best place to stop right there is we uh, imagine <laughs> Greg Lederhosen. with uh, Lederhosen <laughs> and mutton chops, right? So, but Greg, we're, we're so thankful that you uh, came on our podcast again. We, we love uh, interacting with you. And I think our listeners will pick up on our fun. But thank you so much for being here. And uh, any closing comments from anyone? Or are we ready to no, wrap? 
No, I, I, well, for me, I just say thank you. Um, I, I always have a good time when I hang out with you guys. So thanks. Thank no, you. Thanks Greg. for coming. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings podcast.